All right, welcome to Now This Is Podcasting. I'm your host, Connor, and I'm here with Calvin, as always. Hey. And uh, we have McKinnon on as a guest again. What's up? And we have another special guest on. We have Kiefer on the show. What's going on, beautiful people? It's Dad by Day here. And uh, I had done the collaboration, uh, the, the book club discussion we had on Ready Player One and Ready Player Two. We've put those out on uh, on all our platforms like Spotify and iTunes, and it's also on YouTube. And also go check out uh, Kiefer's channel, Dad by Day, Gamer by Night. He's got some really good gaming content on there. Uh, but yeah, we're talking about Ready Player One today, and it was directed by Steven Spielberg, came out in 2018. It's had like a fairly big budget, uh, like 155 to 175 million is what I had it at. And uh, it made 583 million, so it wasn't uh, like a bomb by any means, but uh, it feels long. It's uh, two hours and 20 minutes, and it is not the most enjoyable film I've ever watched. Um, but it's based on, like I said, the New York Times bestseller by Ernest Klein, which is a terrible book. So Ready Player One is directed by Steven Spielberg and stars Ansel Elgort, or is it Miles Teller, or maybe Rachel Maddow? <laughs> um, I'm not 100% sure. Um, it's actually Ty Sheridan who plays the uh, the main character, Wade Watts. I just think they all look like the same person. <laughs> yeah, I found out that Ty Sheridan exists because of this movie. <laughs> right. So let's get into first impressions. Uh, Kiefer, what did you think of this movie? Uh, I think the movie sucked, and your time is better spent watching something else. All right, and I just want to thank Kiefer uh, for being on the podcast. Again, go check out his uh, YouTube channel, Dad by Day, Gamer by Night. And thanks again for being on, Kiefer. Yep, see you guys. Love that guy. Love having him on. Yeah, that was a fun collaboration I got to do with him on those books. Uh, even though we didn't love them, it was still fun to talk about them. But this is about the movie. And so, Calvin, what is your first thoughts on Ready Player One? Yeah, I think he concisely sums up all of my thoughts. But um, yeah, this is a movie that, that wants to be everything. It wants to be a dazzling spectacle, like a really engaging story with quirky characters and, and social commentary. It's like a, a movie with a, a truly heartfelt message of living for the things that matter. And it's amazing because it's none of those things i so agree with you it, it feels like it's supposed to be about something and i just it never really tracks on any one thing to, no. to matter to me and in one when the moment it starts to say something it introduces something else in complete opposition to that it can't even cons stay consistent even if it was within one vein and it was going a direction immediately it subverts everything it had built so mckinnon what are your first thoughts on this movie I like this movie a lot when I first saw it, and at, over the years, I've, as I've developed my movie-watching brain, I have come to really dislike this movie. Because, Moving on from being a smooth brain yep, to a movie brain. Exactly. Right, right. I had become blinded by the video game nostalgia in this movie, and now I know that it's just bad. Right, right. <laughs> I think that's uh, definitely a big point I have is uh, it's big, it's dumb, I don't care about the characters, but hey, I got to see Battletoads in this. Yeah, like, mu much like the book, it leans a lot on like the pop culture stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I thought a lot about how movies use nostalgia and fan service, and a movie that came out not too long ago was Spider-Man No Way Home, and if I'm going to spoil it for you, like I'm sorry, it's been out for a minute. Um, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield show up in this movie and they operate it in the movie in a way that drives the plot forward and they're, they're actual characters that live in it. They're not just something in the background that I get to look at and be like, hey, did you see that? I noticed that. I remember. And it worked in that movie in a way that I think other Star Wars movies haven't done it very well either. It's like, oh, I saw C-3PO and R2-D2 in the background. Like, oh, fan service, fun for me. This movie does that exact same thing. It's just a lot of things that exist that you can pick out in the background to be excited about. But there isn't an actual, like, real important story in this. It, at least it's it feels like it's supposed to be important. 
but it doesn't it's not engaging me in any way so i think that's the big problem with this movie it's it's so heavily relies on nostalgia and what you can recognize and that doesn't make it a good movie right exactly that just it appeals to the spectacle. And I think what's so funny about it too, is thinking about like all of these classic video game characters, like they need to be put into the world economy if they want to survive. Like this is the landscape where everyone's going to be like your character needs to be in there, but like Nintendo still isn't in it. (laughs) (laughs) You're so right. I didn't even like put that together. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because at the same time, it still operates in a world where they don't allow their characters to be in other, um, in anything else which I think is so funny. So one thing I did want to bring up, this screenplay was written by Ernest Klein, who was the author of the book, and it was also done with Zach Penn, who did cinematic juggernauts like X-Men Last Stand and The Incredible Hulk. Uh, again, are films that don't come to mind when I think of uh, big-time box office draws. And Spielberg also made a point that this is a movie and not a film. And Calvin and I, and McKen was on for that podcast as well when we talked about Shawshank Redemption, about how that's a movie not a film mm-hmm. and so i think it's kind of at least steven spielberg was self-aware enough to recognize that this is just a big dumb movie and not a film and i think at least the movie is treated that way it's not really trying to be anything except just big and dumb yeah which is weird like uh, like trying to be something and have a message se- sometimes seems to be mutually exclusive in order to have an engaging story sometimes it feels like it needs to conform to a certain set of expectations that include having a message about like being moral like some like some sort of like video game parable is like almost what you could think of this as as being in order to, to conform to the expectations of the casual moviegoer so when this movie premiered, Steven Spielberg wasn't at the like the Hollywood release of it. He went to South by Southwest for uh, the premiere there. And he talked about Ready Player One was perhaps the greatest anxiety attack he'd ever had. He said when he works on movies, he does it from the high, behind the camera where he has the most control. And he said with this one, it was more like he was an audience member while he was making it. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, to me, it feels like that totally comes across in this because it feels like this movie doesn't really have a direction it just feels like it's a lot of stuff in it. And I think that's so apparent in the style it was directed. I wonder, did that come across to you guys? Do you, do you feel like that sort of lack of influence on this film made a difference to you? Does, does that mean that he directed the movie, but he had his hands off the whole time? What does that mean? So what it means is that, that they actually modeled the, the uh, landscapes in um, digital. And then he would be given a, a headset VR to go and walk through the spaces. So it's not a specific camera. It's like, this is how the space would actually feel if you were there. So that's the kind of difference between where I think movie making is really going to go. It's like, what happens when you yourself are in this situation and not just the camera, which I find interesting. I don't see it as being an an issue that he was like, because it's obviously not hands off. It gives you like a different sense of scope of like what kind of perspectives we're trying to, to go for when you are literally the person which is different than the camera the camera can be so constricting sometimes because you're trying to take something from real life then putting it then put it in this frame and then cut everything together they tried very hard it seemed to make it to give you the sense that this was a person 
with a headset on looking at all of these things. And I think like the end battle scene does that really, really well. Like sure, it's a lot of cheap fan service and it's really like, I, I sit there and I get I get so annoyed. Like, why do I have goosebumps? Like, yeah, I like Halo. <laughs> right, yeah, right. I like Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> but this is so stupid. Why does my body like like this? So there's that there's that biological factor of like it's 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 tingling. It's it's taking advantage of the the human condition. But it's also a really cheap way of doing it. For sure, that's exactly how I feel about this. Uh, another point he made is um, he said he made it as if he was sitting in the audience with you. It was a film he directed from sitting right next to an audience member and that means he was making a picture for you and that that your reaction is everything which is kind of what calvin just said it's how do we react to it like while you were disappointed in yourself for having a reaction to it that was the (laughs) point of this movie was to get a reaction out of the audience so i think that kind of speaks to a lot of the way this movie was made and kind of how it's digested as well a lot of self-loathing for me (laughs) I think another interesting aspect of it is he was pretty upfront about not wanting a lot of his own work appearing in the film. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting because he didn't want it to be like a plug for his own sort of stuff or like the he wanted to make sure that there was no not even a vestige of uh, of um, self-importance. Yeah, which I appreciate. I mean, you got you can't do a big movie like this that is supposed to be so referential and not have some Spielberg like aspect to it or some Spielberg uh, uh, properties in it. So, I mean, obviously I like the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. I mean, you have stuff that's going to make appearances, but apparently they wanted to work a lot more in and he was pretty adamant about, Hey, no, no, no. Like, we, there's so much stuff we can we can add other things besides what I what I've done. Yeah, it's also really interesting thinking that like he's synonymous with T-Rexes. Like that's. <laughs> there's like a, an extra level of arrogance that, <laughs> that it's actually like, kind of badass. Yeah. <laughs> Well, also to think like, like, I don't think Spielberg or Jurassic Park, when I see T-Rexes, I think like, wow, that is a representation of our understanding of what a a creature with that skeletal structure looks like. I don't think Jurassic Park, but it's interesting thinking that he might think that. I just think maybe like in pop culture in general, when you think of T-Rex, you probably think of Jurassic Park. Maybe not like from an archaeological standpoint, Mm. But I think like a regular moviegoer is going to think like, oh, T-Rex. Yeah, that's Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah. Maybe we should save this conversation from when you do uh, Jurassic Park for the third time. Yes. Okay. The Lost Podcast. The Lost oh. Podcast. <laughs> the last Lost. Yeah. This, it'll be <laughs> Jurassic Park 3, the first. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's move on into the aesthetic, kind of look at this film, some of the sound. Uh, I think at the very least they nailed uh, dystopian future. And I think that's really important. If you want to set up the Oasis as someplace that's really important to how people live their daily life, uh, how economies and everything run through the Oasis. I think you need to set up the world as kind of being so crappy that you want to be in the Oasis. It needs to be an Oasis. And so I think they at least did a good job of that. It's not necessarily the most visually striking elements. It's a lot of containers and things and mobile homes stacked on each other. But at, at the very least, I think I got the point that this is kind of dystopian and the Oasis is an escape. And so I thought it worked out well in that way. Yeah, a lot of dull shades in like the real world. And Very stuff. gray. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I still think it's fairly bright the way they've lit everything. There's an, almost a, a sense of hopefulness um, that comes out of it in the way that you could have made everything a lot more dingy and dark, uh, like Pan's Labyrinth, something with, with that aesthetic, with that palette. It could have been darker, but the contrast to the Oasis, I think, makes it more bleak. I suppose. Because the Oasis is so like vibrant and colorful. Like All the characters are shiny and colorful. I still think I, I have some problems with the Oasis and how it's portrayed, too. I don't think it's crazy enough. Really? I don't think it's out there enough. You have this platform that allows you to essentially do anything, look like anything, be anyone. And they spend a lot of time in like 
H's warehouse where he's building things. You spend time on <laughs> you spend time on like a race car track and well, like I almost said Donkey Kong. While King Kong is like bouncing around and you got T Rexes coming at you, it's still like something I've seen in Burnout or some other racing game. Calvin had mentioned the final fight too. It just takes place on like a snow-capped mountain. Again, it's just kind of looking in the background for extra content and extra characters and stuff. Yeah, it actually, it's all about the intellectual properties and not the settings. Exactly. It it doesn't feel like they pushed the envelope as far as they could for really exciting set pieces and really utilizing the Oasis to the extent that we're told it is. Like you spend a lot of time in a library looking at... A very boring library. Right, yeah. And it's it just feels like this movie could have really utilized that space a lot better. And I wonder, like, of the set pieces that go on, like, do you guys think that they're utilized? Well, like, yeah, I think you're kind of right. There's some interesting character designs, like for um, Parzival, Wade's avatar, and uh, Artemis has kind of a cool character design. But those are your main characters, so you have to make them kind of look neat. But it just felt like a lot of the other stuff that isn't an intellectual property wasn't very exciting in this movie. So do you think that they should have had like video game areas instead of like these boring libraries and areas like that. Yeah. I think actually one of the settings that is actually maybe kind of cool is the junkyard sort of molten lava planet where you meet IROC. Yeah. But that scene is so goofy and so stupid that I can't even like really soak in how much I like the setting they're in. And that's like the one kind of interesting setting I think they go to. Mm -hmm. So my, yeah, again, my problem is just that they're not utilizing this space as well as they could for, for a, a movie and, that, that can probably really push the envelope as far as like a, a visual effects budget. It felt like it still wasn't as exciting. Like your sure. final fight takes place, takes place on a snow, snowy mountain. Like that's, yeah. that's all you could do really. Yeah. So like the, the, one of the first fights of the movie when they're sh- introducing H and H is like collecting coins cause H is killing everyone or whatever. If that setting was like on one of Halo's most famous maps or something like that, that could have been really sweet. But yeah. I'm saying pump it even more from there. Yeah. Make it make it a mix between like you fall from uh, uh, like lockout on Halo uh-huh. and then it, it changes to like uh, you, you go through a wormhole and now you're on like a world, uh, a level of Dune. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sorry, of Doom. Mm-hmm. And, and you're fighting off demons that are from like the Doom games and stuff like that. Like it just felt like there was so much more. Like that yeah. was just an idea off the top of my head. Yeah, really already feels up, more exciting. Yeah, I assume... really pump up the fan service. If you're going to go that far, make everything that they live in uh, something nostalgia. I assume that they've got to be restricted by copyright and stuff, right? I wouldn't think so. Once they got a once lot of permission there, to use a lot of stuff in this. so A it, lot, I'm sure, but... It I feels mean, like they, they didn't take advantage of it. Maybe. Okay. I could see that. Yeah, I don't know what pay structures would look like for a representation of uh, intellectual properties, but I'd imagine it's more like a one-time fee. or like it, if, if it's in your movie the whole time or if it makes a, a single appearance i don't think there's a really there's going to be that much of a difference mm-hmm. or have your opening have your opening race go from something like it starts out like a like 8-bit or 16-bit mario kart and then as it goes on it changes to like jet moto which is like a playstation one game mm-hmm. and then it goes further to like need for speed like kind of aesthetic like it change it up do something besides just having a t-rex and like a a, a a ball and chain coming and swinging at you. It felt like there was more exciting stuff that could have happened. So you would have liked to see more fan service. Yeah, I think if you're going to go in that direction, yeah, yeah okay. I would. Yeah. Okay. It, Cause it, just, just showing the iron giant fight Mechagodzilla at the end of the movie is fan service, but it's not in the direction that you would like to see. If you're going to do fan service to the degree they did, just turn it up in a couple notches and go all in. Okay. It felt like it was just to have, like Calvin said, like intellectual property in the background. It felt like it wasn't really doing anything in the movie. Okay. Have it all mean something. Like have it just just jump in with both feet. I think you need to go all in instead of just like, oh, I recognize thing. Yeah. Have it be 
have that be what the movie is then. Yeah. Right. If you don't have any original ideas, much like the book, then make sure everything is someone else's really cool idea. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so getting away from some of the visual elements of this film, I want to touch on the score a little bit. It's just popular 80s songs. One thing that Calvin had mentioned in other movies we'd done, um, like Incendies, there's that, uh, was it a Radiohead song? There's two Radiohead songs in there. And one thing that you had mentioned is when you play a song that's popular and that people know and love, that's what your scene becomes about. It doesn't become about the characters in it or what's happening in it. You're just like, oh, hey, like uh, one way or another is playing. I love this song. So that instantly makes the scene more fun to you and exciting. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm not saying you can't like movies that do that. My problem is if that's all your score is, is just popular music from a certain era, then you're it feels cheap. It's like you're taking advantage of people's love for these songs to make your movie better. Yeah. It's very lazy because what you're taking advantage of is are, are emotions that you already know are going to be created. It, a movie works really well when you don't need those music, the, the music or any other element to really create the feeling that you're going for. Everything on screen should, should elicit that feeling that you ha- that you already have. If everything that you've made leading up to that point is logical fits within the narrative fits within the character but the fact that like and a lot of times i feel like those those songs take take away from what's happening it suddenly becomes about oh this this song doesn't fit at all with what's actually happening on screen what's happening now is my personal baggage of this song right i don't normally notice the score in movies so i didn't really notice this one that's weird because i think this one is so in your face it's in your face in a way that i think emotionally doesn't resonate the way something like Guardians of the Galaxy does because Guardians of the Galaxy does the exact same thing. Yeah. Uh, a movie that has a... So Suicide Squad, the first one, not The Suicide Squad. Right. They play so many popular mainstream songs and that, I think, is really in your face. This one I didn't notice so much. Which is funny that you bring that one up. That was totally like done almost after the fact in editing Yeah, because they were like, oh my God, people love Guardians of the Galaxy. Let's put a bunch of poppy songs in our movie. I know a lot of people criticized it yeah. too. They hated that there were so many songs in that yeah. movie. It was but... very reactionary and it didn't really seem to fit, mm-hmm. which is, it's a different reason why those songs are put in this film, but or this movie, this is not a film. But it felt the same way. It it, uh, it feels like a distraction, not like something that's like built into the scene and is cohesive with it. Right, because at least this movie is about the 80s, so it makes sense in this movie. But it it's just not something I noticed now. Yeah. Okay. It's a wild concept making like making an, a, a multimedia project or like a, an art project or any type of creative work about a decade. Like I know I, I've read the, the, the sum, synopsis for the books. It just feels like the weirdest idea to be like, I love the 80s. How can I make a story about something not in the 80s about the 80s? Right. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Go ahead and listen to our discussion on that. That was a that was a fun one to do. So let's move on to the characters now. We mentioned Ty Sheridan, who plays Wade Watts. Uh, budget Ansel Elgort. Right. <laughs> I love that joke. It's so funny. They just look all alike, right? Yeah. I was for a long time. I was like expecting him like like then to make like a nod to baby driver and then i realized it's not actually that character oh, is, is that a different person yeah that yeah. was the joke That's, oh yeah. my gosh <laughs> i didn't realize that was different yeah okay and the, the other one is like miles teller who's in the like the whiplash whiplash yeah. he did the fantastic four movie i think they yeah. all just look the same yeah yeah they are exactly the same i don't know about miles teller but uh i think that definitely ansel Gordon and ty sheridan I think but. they're they're all rumored to be up for the new Bond. I think they're trying to go young with Bond or something like that. Gosh, oh. That sounds terrible. But like all those guys, they're all they're all 
I mean, that's 30s. I mean, it would make sense that, like, for a secret agent that does the things he do, like, for him to not be 50. It would it would turn I, out, yeah. like, um, what was the movie with um, with Malcolm in the Middle? What is, what is his name? Oh, um, Frankie Muniz? What, yeah, uh, Agent Cody Banks. It would, it would turn out like that. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it, um, oh, my God, what's her name from All That in it? Amanda Bynes. Amanda, Amanda Bynes? Bynes is in that movie. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure you're right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow, yeah. that's, a, that's a Nickelodeon throwback right there. Yeah, bring those that the the new Bond. Yeah, I want, I want <laughs> a Agent, Bond for a younger generation. <laughs> I want Agent Cody Banks back. Oh wow. Uh, but let's talk about Wade Watts. Uh, so honestly, I don't have a ton to say about any of the characters in this. I think they're all about as shallow as a puddle. Um, that's that's giving a lot of credit that they actually even have moisture. <laughs> puddles would be a, a pretty upset with me for making that comparison (laughs) um but again this movie feels like it's made for kids which again isn't a problem but then it also seems to tonally like kind of have some more it's trying to maybe have some more bigger ideas that feel more adult like dealing with corporations and and buyouts and and who's got the controlling interest of what and those are not like concepts that i think kids are very much into although i think if we go back and watch agent cody banks like we will not we will realize that it's like <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. like that thing. I think the thing that really strikes me is how casual um like cursing and cussing is these days. Right. Um that's the thing that really threw me off because it seems to be there's still an old world sensibility about when you can and can't cuss because of how the rating system for movies works. If anybody wants to know how archaic that is, look that up. It's really just a committee of people that have been around forever and it's really arbitrary. Like the F word uh rule is like just something that they came up with it's not a standard it's just a few people that watch movies and like yeah that's uh that's r-rated or pg-13 so how casual they say words like shit in this was really jarring to me because this feels like it should be a kid's movie even though it's the 80s and no kid was born like in the 80s at this point that the film came out you still have that what feels like an adult sensibility about video games, which I'm sure is how online actually plays out. I'm, I mean, I've been online before. It's incredibly abusive. And like, I've heard things that I never knew, like someone would want to say in public before, but did Xbox 360, uh, Xbox live was a wild time to be alive. (laughs) Oh my gosh. The number of incredible, the number, like uh, my mind was opened up to the, the possibility of, uh, how bad racist jokes could be. And I just remember thinking like, wow, that seems inappropriate, but I guess everyone else is laughing. Why is that? So I'm glad they didn't include things like that in this game because yeah. that would have really thrown me for yeah, a Yeah, they should have made this movie more realistic. Yeah, brought, brought, brought Xbox like, live chat rooms. Yeah, true gamer culture <laughs> to <laughs> this movie. A rated R version where a bunch of 12-year-olds talk about fucking your mom and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, we laugh because that's terrible. <laughs> That now that's I'm in twenty years I'm gonna write a book about my nostalgia about Xbox three sixty chat and how the world just isn't as good anymore. You'll you'll get a movie deal after that. <laughs> just like Ernest Klein. One of the other problems I have with Wade Watson this is uh his relationship with Samantha, who we'll talk about next. Out of nowhere, it feels like I know she's supposed to be the love interest. And again, that's part of the problem with these characters. They're all characters I've seen before. And the movie, the movie relies on you knowing these archetypes and how they function in a movie like that. So they don't need to add depth to them because you've seen them before. But he falls in love with her after like two minutes. They, they go to this dance and he's like, I'm in love with you. And, and it creates more artificial drama later on in the movie. But it just felt like out of nowhere. Feels creepy. Yeah, right. Because he's been like 
you know, basically stalking her on. Like, I watch her Twitch pro, uh, streams all the time. I bought her bath water. Like, yeah, he sounds like <laughs> he sounds like that type yeah. of person. <laughs> I actually think this is a really good movie to use as an example of those archetypes because we don't really know why they care about each other except for that we've seen these archetypes a million times. So I was trying to explain to my wife the other day about this idea of archetypes in movies. I was having a hard time with it because it's kind of difficult to explain to someone who doesn't really know about this idea. Yeah, if you haven't been talking about literally archetypes for a year now. Yeah. We're, we're, you're getting close to having hear me talk about like oh archetypes gosh. now. I know, yeah, yeah. Every now and then you come back, I'm trying, I'm trying to limit, I'm trying to, to break up the monotony. of. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but this, this movie is a good example of like you have your hero character and the female and they're supposed to fall in love with each other by the end of the movie but the movie actually doesn't do anything to get from a to b you're just there all of a sudden exactly and that's again that's my problem with it and i think you do bring up a good point because we know these archetypes we just whether, accept whether it. like subconsciously or not yeah. you know it and so when it happens in the movie it's really easy to just accept it unless you like are trying to pick apart this movie like we are and then you notice right away like wait there was no development to get to this point at all <sighs> yeah which is funny because off topic, my wife and I were watching the last Star Wars movie last night, and Kylo Ren and Rey share a kiss at the end of that movie, and they, they had no development either, and it made me so frustrated, and I felt like something similar in this movie. Like, right. they didn't share any moments together. No, I, I agree. <sighs> so let's move on to Samantha then. Uh, it's played by Olivia Cook, and she uh, her avatar's name is Artemis. It's kind of the famous Twitch streamer or whatever. What do they call her? The Sixer Killer or something like that? Something stupid, I'm sure. That sounds right. Uh, yeah. Again, I, she just exists in this movie to create drama. It's like at some point she's really into Wade, and then all of a sudden she's not into Wade because he used his real name. And then she goes and saves Wade uh, when the Sixers come after him in real life, and then she's in love with Wade. It's just it's a lot of kind of back and forth, like kind of fluctuations in this character, and it all really seems just in the service of like Wade having like an interesting arc. Well, like think, it's it's supposed yeah. to like manufacture drama on how Wade gets the girl, and so I don't love how Samantha's used in this. While I do think Olivia Cook actually is, is like interesting in the role, I thought she tried to do something between her, her and Ty Sheridan. I kind of liked her more in this movie, but again, it doesn't really feel like I got anything out of that character. Well, she kind of spends the first half of the movie as like a like a teacher, I think. What do you mean by that? So like when Wade is like being careless after he wins the first uh, the first reward, and he's like not in disguise or anything like that and she's like okay. chastising him for that she's right. kind of she's not the not like, the old man archetype but i kind of get like yeah old yeah. wise woman almost yeah okay. she's like a witch a wise witch okay <laughs> agreed <laughs> no okay i kind of get that yeah. i hadn't made that association but that makes sense again it's just playing on like a archetype that we probably already right made. and then they're like dancing later and he tells her her his real name and she's like why would you do that that's like a dumb thing to do and she's like Kind of this teacher. Speaking of that dance scene and what a movie that felt like it was for kids, why did it get so sexy touching his little bodysuit? It shows all the sensors going off around his Who's that for? Yeah. When, yeah. Exactly when you have the felt. VR set on, you can't see that. Yeah. So why does it show other people like what you're doing and getting touched? That's that's a part of kind of my confusion with this movie is like, who is it for? Yeah. Because that feels like, like oh, like maybe like teen gamer, some 16 year old is probably like, oh yeah, I want a VR suit that can do that. But then a lot of the movie feels like it's written at the level of, of a child. So was that very sexy part of this movie necessary? It felt like it felt not in touch with the rest of the movie. I don't know. And I wonder if we just go back and watch like a lot of other youth cultural stuff that was appropriate for us at that age. We'll realize that this problem has been around for a long time. 
Yeah, it's just interesting. I wonder how much like oh, grumpy old men we actually sound like just because we too. see this and we don't really remember what, how exactly it was uh, when we first saw SpongeBob. You know, you might be right. You know, let's let's put a pin in that. Let's let's kind of go back through our past and pick some some things that we maybe look back on fondly that probably maybe were a little like out of touch as well. That, that's a good idea. I like that, Calvin. Could we do an episode on the podcast where we review our favorite SpongeBob episode? <laughs> oh my god, that'd be great. That, that would be, be amazing. That might be funny. Yeah. That I, I uh, man. I might go. With what the, are they on? Like season twenty now? Oh my gosh. The, so bad now. I might go with the Doodle Bob. I love that one. That's <laughs> Uh, so let's move on to Ben Mendelsohn's character, Sorrento. And I love Ben Mendelsohn. He's in that show Bloodlines on Netflix. I don't know if you guys have watched it. It's no. it's probably one of my favorite things that's ever come out on Netflix. He's amazing in it. He really only appears in the first season in a major way. And then he's kind of in like flashbacks and memories throughout the show. But I like fell in love with him after that. And then he ends up being kind of the antagonist in Rogue One, which I thought he was fine. He is totally underutilized in this movie like he's he's one of the actors i think of when i think of like a really good villain he fills that role in like the poorest way in this i wonder what you guys think of sorrento and how stupid he is for having this password boss man 69 on his rig he's, he's just written badly but he that, that actor is great i remember seeing him in uh, captain marvel i really liked him in that movie also. oh right he is in that yeah. yeah i i yeah he's just written like a buffoon i hate that he's just like I play bad guy. I am bad yeah. guy in movie. I think Calvin had an, we had been texting and he said something. He's like, of all the characters he could show up as his avatar, he's just bad guy in suit, <laughs> which is terrible. <laughs> yeah, that was what, that was going to be my point. It was like, in a world that's totally crazy, imaginative, he's just in a suit and that's it. Like, he's basically like evil Clark Kent. Like, what a stupid avatar for a villain. Yeah. Well, that's also to show why he would be a bad owner of this company, right? Like, he lacks the imagination that someone with this company would probably want to have. Like, he's corporate all the time, exactly. even when he is yeah. an avatar. Okay, I can kind of see that. But Look at the same time. to justify some of the yeah. the character choices for this. Yeah, I guess I can, like, see that. But, like, it's, it's really just an extension of themselves. Like, the idea, like, you're not going to be selling money if... Uh, you're not making this world cool to be in. And it's already like that. So he doesn't need to do that. He just needs to make it so that you can't pull yourself out of the world and mm-hmm. you're trying and you're extracting as much of money as you can. And that's already like that. Like these people can't leave this world. Like when we get to themes, I have a whole big problem about the way it treats what is the oasis right. and the idea of escapism. So I just have a couple more characters I want to get through. I want to talk about JT Miller or sorry, TJ Miller <laughs> and his portrayal of IROC. Why is T.J. Miller in movies still? I don't understand his appeal. I love him in Silicon Valley, but the point of his character is that he's so unlikable and he is the butt of the joke. Like, that's why he works out so well in that show. But he continues to play characters that are supposed to be comedic and kind of bring some laughs to your movie. But he doesn't... He's not funny. (laughs) He's only funny when you're making fun of him. And that's why I don't think he works in this movie at all. And I don't understand his appeal. That's also his, like, the way his... uh stand-up is is structured i i think one of the first lines of one of his shows is like tj miller or like if you're feeling creative like tj butt filler (laughs) 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 oh that's great yeah like exactly exactly what you're talking about i think that's such a problem with comedians in general it's like oh funny guy let's put him in funny guy role and we'll just these are the lines we wrote for funny guy and it'll be funny because he's funny guy like they think that's all the all the thinking that goes into casting someone like that and it doesn't matter what brand of humor they are it's whether like they could have been Brian Regan that could have been it could have been like a Chris Pratt 
Could have been Will yeah. Ferrell. Yeah, exactly. It could have like, and I even feel like, well, like it a needs Paul to be... Rudd. Paul, I think Paul Rudd would have been fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It could have just been like, it would have just been like any type of guy. But but think about all of the the different styles of humor that those three have. Neither one of them fit this. It seems like. Just right. like T.J. Miller's, just like funny guy, name value. Let's get him in there. Calvin and I talked about a funny tweet we saw not too long ago. It was like, T.J. Miller's wife is really making a name for herself. <laughs> <laughs> and the tweet was totally like not self-aware. It didn't even put T.J. Miller's name in the tweet. Yeah. But it was talking about how she had made a name for herself. It was, it was literally, it was a, I think the, the tweet was actually referencing an article that had that title. That was the title of the article. Like, Drive wow. home the point, like how she's dri- she's making a name for herself. I still don't know her name. <laughs> yeah, I still don't either. I think it's just funnier not knowing because they didn't tell us. God, it's funny. I yeah, I dislike him in this movie. I remember watching him in uh, Transformers Four the last night, and I looked over at my wife and I was like, "Man, I really hate this guy." And then he dies like thirty minutes into that movie, and I like let out a sigh of relief. Right, like so oh. I really dislike T.J. Miller. I don't. Man. I like T.J. Miller, but he's just always so miscast as that quirky side character. But that's not his brand of humor. He needs to be kind of reprehensible, like you're saying in sec- in Silicon Valley. That's why it's funny. It's because it's 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 towing the line of that dark black humor of like this is uncomfortable. I don't like you. Type of awkward humor. Yeah. Do, do you like him in Deadpool? Ugh, I don't know. I don't mind him no. in Deadpool, but again, he's not he's not really like that. I mean, if you're if you're owning like a bar, you should be a little bit more charismatic, which is nothing like what TJ yeah. Miller is. I think there's some fun interplay between those between him and uh, Ryan Reynolds, because I think of them as being similar type humor. But mm-hmm. because they both look different in in uh, like levels of attractiveness, they need to play different <laughs> levels yeah. of, of humor. Interesting. I, okay. My problem with that movie, it, that movie is so tiring to me. It's not funny to just have quip after quip after quip. Like there's not really comedic set pieces in that. It's just how many funny lines can we cram into this movie before the yeah. two hour runtime ends? And I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God. Yeah. Well, the appeal of that movie was it was the first one to really like break the fourth wall like it did, but it's it doesn't hold up on rewatches now. Yeah, that movie is exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I, I do like it because I just, I think of it just as like, uh, lots of funny. I think of it as a big stand-up that's actually funny. I don't find a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us how you really feel about stand-up, Calvin. <laughs> I feel like a lot of stand-up is not very funny. So I feel like when you t- when you take like like two years of preparing a script like that, and I don't care about the narrative. I just I'm just here for jokes. Um, I find it very funny for that reason. Hmm. So I want to move on to one last character. Not really incredibly important, like important narratively, but doesn't play a big role personally in the film. And that's Mark Rylance, who plays Halliday. We just did a podcast not too long ago on Don't Look Up. And he plays the same guy in Don't Look Up as he does in this movie, like like subdued nerd guy. Who also feels like he's going through like early stages of dementia. Right? <laughs> it's so <laughs> awkward. I'm just saying he's got that. He's been typecast. He can nail that role, I think. I thought he was fine in this. He does Halliday, I guess, justice. But I just thought it was funny. We've watched these two movies like pretty close to each other, reviewing them pretty close to each other. It's just funny. He's literally the same guy in both these films. That character is supposed to be on like the autism spectrum, I think. For sure. And I think I think it's, which is probably good to have that kind of representation in a movie. Because nerds are on the spectrum or something. <laughs> no, but I think you could probably, 
if you were, and the idea that you could find someone to identify with who is big and successful, and mm-hmm. that, that idea that like that kind of person exists in a movie, yeah, I think it'd probably be like beneficial to someone who is on the spectrum. Sure. I don't care for that character. I just didn't. I didn't Again, like I don't want to get. I didn't want to get deep into Halliday. I just thought it was funny that Mark Rylance plays essentially the same character. This exact same character, movies. yeah. So I do find that character really interesting in a type of meta discussion about what it means of authorship. I feel like uh, that character was a reflection of Ernest Cline. Like, I love eighties. I'm going to put myself into this character that just wants to be a purveyor of eighties stuff. And there is just a certain level of detached arrogance and egotism that goes into making like, I'm a nerd. Now I own the world and I can give the world to anyone. And I think that's so, so out of touch, I think with, with who you're trying to even sell this book to. So do you think the author identifies more with Halliday than Wade? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which I is think interesting because I think an author usually identifies themselves with the hero. Yeah, and in this case, I think that he's, he sees himself as like as like this god of this world that he's created through the 80s. Yeah, right. I could see that. So if I'm just going to plug it again, go listen to our discussion, book club discussion on Ready Player One. We go over that a lot because I think he's, Ernest Klein has put himself mostly into Wade and Halliday, but he's also put himself into every character because he wants to virtue signal in this way. He wants to give his opinion on this thing. He wants to let everyone know how he feels about the different things that he cares about. And he does it essentially through all of his characters. This movie doesn't do it as much as the book does, thank God. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to our review or if you've read the book, I think it's easy to recognize that this guy just wants to talk about things that he cares about the only way he can do that is by bootstrapping his own uh, book onto other people's more successful content. So I'm just saying, go check out that review because I think what Calvin said is like dead on. And the book really, really does that in a way that the movie is more subdued. Yeah, it really feels like Revenge of the Nerds uh, type of uh, sentiment. For putting sure. yourself into a character. All right, so let's move on into some of the themes, like kind of dive deeper into this movie. Uh, Calvin, I want to know what you think of it. Yeah, so I really structured my ideas on this film into two categories, things that are good, and I left that blank, and then, th- <laughs> <laughs> and then things that are bad. And man, does that constitute all of my ideas on this movie. So yeah, obviously we have budget, Ansel Elgort, we covered that. So we have this idea of like community and fighting for something, and then also this idea of living in the real world and the movie make keeps saying that people are ignoring the real world and have stopped trying to fix the world's problems as commentary on the slow on the slippery slope of social media and video game addiction but it also ignores the fact that the game has turned into a global economy so a lot of these people aren't escaping they're literally working it's basically criticizing the capitalist state of the world as we experience it while deciding to make a boogeyman out of video games it's a lot of pearl clutching that video games are the problem with the world and not late stage capitalist structures i had a really big problem with i think they try to add in a moral nugget at the end of this movie like hey we shut down the oasis like two days a week because the real world is real and we need to be in it and i was like that doesn't work because you've already set up the real world as someplace that's like nearly unlivable. And so wouldn't it be, mo- <laughs> how, how is it more beneficial to spend your leisure time in a place that you find to be dystopian? How is that better spent there than in, in the Oasis where you can find some enjoyment in your life? 
And so I, I hated that, that there was some kind of like moral high ground that this movie tried to take at the very end. And I thought it didn't fit to kind of the, the characters or the overall narrative that had been pushed forward in the movie. And it's like Calvin said, it was, it was almost like it tried to, yeah, like a boogeyman out of video games. Like this is everything that's wrong with them. You know, we shouldn't be trapped in these games all the time. But you've set up your real world is such a terrible place that why wouldn't you want to escape to a game? Yeah, if they're going to end the movie like that, then they should have played up more during the movie about how they need to take care of the world because the plot doesn't have anything to do with the real world. It has to do with the Oasis. Yeah, yeah. The the plot hinges on who will get the controlling interest of the Oasis, right. not, hey, maybe there are some other things that are of more value. Maybe there are some things that are more important than this game and we can tackle those issues. That's the that's kind of the, like you right. said, that's the problem with it is but we're not told how important things outside the oasis are yeah if wade wanted to win the if wade wanted to win so that he could take control of the oasis to help show people that they need to distance themselves from the oasis and focus on the real world that would have been an interesting character trait or he's going to take this huge fortune that he gets to improve the world sure that yeah. he lives in but, but that's not the point he himself is completely consumed by the oasis yeah right, right. and i find it like i think the ending is incredibly cynical and um because it, like it's really insulting to anyone that sees the value of video, video games, like the, how it connects, how you can create com- a daily community with friends, and like even though you're separated, you know, by the occasional pandemic, that you can still like. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys heard? There was a there was a person reviewing this movie, and they're like, "We shut down the Oasis every Tuesday and Thursday," and the person reviewing the movie is like. What about the people who work every day of the week except for Tuesday and Thursday? They just can't use the Oasis now. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> and that's actually like that like that's that's the the biggest problem I have is like this movie makes such a point uh that friends and community and fighting for something is valuable. And then it ends with the character winning the perfect life and deciding that people shouldn't play on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Like it basically scolds people for trying to escape their existential misery by playing video games while at the same time acknowledging that the only way to do that is to be a multimillionaire with hot girlfriend your own penthouse apartment that is such an excellent way to a great summation of like the ending of this story yeah i I agree with you so much it's very like like big brother like i know what's best for you get out in the real world touch grass yeah exactly but i do want to talk about the idea of escapism in general Um, because I think like like so many like that was something in school like what are movies to you and we would have discussion and everyone was like oh movies are escapism and I think that's exactly what it's such a shallow like this movies are escapism aren't they don't you love things that help you escape and like but just so you know escapism is bad but that's also just a really narrow way of looking at art and movies in general and that's why I have a problem with like it's criticizing one thing that movies are and it it is trying to be that thing at the same time. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. The movie is, at the end, the movie is criticizing what the movie is. Absolutely. The, the movie is escapism, and the Oasis is escapism. And so for Wade to shut down the Oasis at the end is essentially a critique on the film, yeah, which is you fascinating. Sh- you shouldn't be watching this film is <laughs> yeah. basically what it's saying. It's fascinating way to look at it. I don't think I ever realized that. Now I hate this movie even more. Right. Yeah. So that's the thing. It's like we're going to talk about Borgman here in like uh, a couple weeks. And Borgman is um, a really obscure Dutch film that uh, premiered at the, the Cannes Film Festival in 2013. 
And it's just an exercise in ambiguity and nuance of human life. Like the, so many times we don't need answers. We don't need stories. We just like, we are just living things. And to have art that reflects how life really works makes you look at your own life and actually look at the critical details of like how you live and like why are you living at things and being more intentional about those things. Because when you put them in this, in this wider um, array and you see things for what they are, you can realize like, oh, I can actually like, I would probably be happier like if I did things this way. Like I used to play video games all the time. My 20s were video games, all, all video games. And I just wanted to get home and play video games. And I was always so upset when my routine got interrupted. Like, oh, I have to go do chores. Like, oh, I have to pick someone up from the airport. Like, I want to play video games. And when I got to the point where, like, I just need to be be living and video games are then a community exercise that I build friends out of, my life suddenly got a lot easier, a lot happier, and I could just structure my time around the things that really mattered. It's weird how badly this movie misses that point, even though that's what it's trying to say. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, Kiefer and I had mentioned in our review of the book, Ready Player One, is the kind of friendships we'd built through online gaming. So for a while, I was I was in the Navy, and I lived in North Carolina, and I didn't have a ton of friends yet. And so I played online games with the friends I had already made uh, through gaming. And it was really nice. I did it every weekend. So I, I think that you make a really good point, and it's unfortunate that this movie is criticizing that point of, it's like, you know what, I know you've made these great relationships, but you know we're going to turn it off because you need to go and you need to go outside. Yeah. And I, again, I, I'm not saying that people who game nonstop, like that's the way to live. And I'm not saying that people who want to go out and do things is the way to live. I'm just saying the idea that you know better than everyone and you're like 16 and you're going to make this big decision for the world. It seemed really out of touch with what the movie was really supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of wanted to know what, what you guys think about escapism. Like what, what how do you really see movies? I think that's exactly why I go see movies is to forget about to forget about what I have to do that evening and I can just focus on the movie for a while mm. and be sucked into it. So one of my problems with movies is when I notice uh, massive plot holes because that takes me out of the escapism. So I find myself wanting to watch movies for different reasons. I have uh, a Treasure Planet poster on my wall. And I love that movie because I will never experience anything that happens in Treasure Planet. And it's just a really fun movie. It has great characters in it. I just love the story. And that's to me, like, that's when I want to watch a movie for escapism. Like, that's the kind of movie I would go to. We talked not too long ago about Don't Look Up. And that movie is absolutely a commentary on things that are going on now. But it's done in, it's pieced together in a way that's a farce and is satirical and is funny that I can still recognize that this is an issue going on in my daily life but I can digest it in a way that's like not as dense and it can still be fun for me to watch. And I can have kind of a, a fun time laughing at myself in the situation I'm in. So I think like that's a way I escape too. It's like kind of how do I maybe make fun of the situation in I'm in or how do I escape it completely and watch something that's just so fantastical that it takes me out of my daily life for a minute. So I think it depends. I don't know that I pick a specific kind of movie just to escape. I think it kind of, it's all encompassing and that's what makes film so great is it feels like there's probably a movie for every mood I'm in and all of it kind of helps me escape. Sometimes I want to feel sad. I went through a really bad breakup one time and I watched Castaway like four times because that <laughs> movie is so sad and I just wanted to feel sad for a minute and sometimes I wanted to feel my feelings and that's why that movie worked for me at that time in my life. And then sometimes, you know what? Hannah and I just love to sit and watch Mulan 
and we watch Mulan like maybe six times a year because we just <laughs> love the movie and it's just a fun thing we get to do together. When I think of escapism, I don't think I can narrow it down to like one category of film or one type of film. It's just something I need at that time. And I think, again, that's why film works so well in our society and helps us cope with things. Yeah, I really think of like um, uh, is, is escapism as this... Uh, this thing that needs to happen every now and then. I think that as Americans, we're so caught up in the in the busyness of like making sure we're we're um, getting something done that we're either playing video games, we're doing the complete opposite, or we're just trying to be as busy as possible. My problem really with it with escapism as it exists in movies is that a lot of those movies just aren't made very well. They're trying to be as reductionist as possible. Like how simple of a story can we get away with and repeat and get and get butts in seats? There's a there's an extra level of cynicism that goes with the market for escapism that I have a problem with. I like like kind of what you're saying. Like, but I I'll generally look at TV shows that way. Like uh like I really liked The Good Place. That was a really good show for me. <laughs> That's wonderful. I love that show. That's like there's like a little bit of commentary and a little bit of like you know this is kind of the way the world is when you're talking about pure utilitarianism um and but it's, it's also um, just the right amount of goofy yeah to make you feel like you're having a good time yeah it's it's uh i i love that show for that reason it's not it's really just a uh, a lived experience of goofiness with the idea like these do have real world consequences but it's not in your face and it's not necessarily the point because the net the point is escapism is it is comedy but there's a, an undertone of message so i guess my next question would be we've discussed what escapism means to us did this movie ready player one meet that for you there were the you know those battle moments where like I get goosebumps just looking at like oh my god look at all the Spartans from Halo and yeah Sonic the Hedgehog and I'm sure there were a bunch of other ones I don't remember I loved Godzilla as a kid so that was like cool yeah like seeing Mecha Godzilla yeah like, right and if you notice like the theme actually right there um, incorporated the original Godzilla yep. theme and I loved that I was like oh that is just wonderful little nostalgia and just a shitty movie right but uh, yeah I don't know like there were just there were just moments where it was like, why can't we make a video game that looks like this? Actually, you know, that part was more interesting to me. I think the only part of the movie that I could escape was when you went to the bathroom. It was the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he escaped the escape. The literal escape. Yeah. Uh, no, it was the first challenge with the, the racing, which wasn't in the book, which is good because if they put the challenge that was in the book in the movie, it would suck. Um, I like to describe this movie as inspired by yes, the book. Yes. It is not an adaptation of the book. There is so much stuff that is so different. Which is good. Which is which is fine because I think that you, there are directors at times that try really hard to do a perfect adaptation of their source material, which wouldn't work in this movie at all. horrible. Be oh my gosh. Brutal to get through. And this movie is already brutal to get through. Yeah. Uh, but I thought the race was really well done and I liked I liked the camera angles and King Kong and the T-Rex and all that stuff. But that was that was the only part of the movie that I thought was interesting because everything else after this was undeserved because every character is flat. Right. Yeah. It's as uh, shallow as a puddle. I will say the one of my least favorite parts about the movie is also the race because when they figure out that all you have to do is go backwards and then you find the secret entrance. Like So many people have criticized that in this movie because video gamers are notorious for finding secret levels and one of the first things you do is you go backwards i was gonna say i yeah. know every i used to play racing games a lot like i love the nascar games when yep. i was growing up if i started feeling like i was losing the race i would just drive backwards and yeah. try to wreck as many cars as i could <laughs> i know that that's not really a component of this 
race because it's on like a it's done like a sprint like it's from one point to another it's mm-hmm. not a it's not a track that starts and ends at the same place but i'm just saying still like i know i would have gone backwards oh my god oh, yeah. 100%. Idiots like us would have gone backwards <laughs> there been, there could have been way better ways to hide a, yeah. like a secret level in there right and that a team of uh, the scholars well uh, the all of the scholars oh, right. like like a 16 year old kid would have found that clip and be like oh i understand you need to go backwards like that entire d- team of scholars wouldn't have found that first is ridiculous yeah, the right. fact that the that kids found any of these and not this dedicated group of uh um, like paid specialists yeah it's ridiculous and like the heavy-handed dialogue when they do figure out they have to go backwards with holiday saying what what if we could just go backwards really really fast it really punched, really pushed in the metal. It is so heavy-handed. I, yeah. I hated that so yeah. much. It was all garbage. I don't know if there's really a part that I necessarily enjoyed. I think at the beginning I was like, "Oh, that's Ralph Innocent," and that's about it. All right, I enjoyed that part. <laughs> so I want to get a let's collect our final thoughts, McKinnon. What do you take away from this movie? I don't take away anything. I hate it. <laughs> Perfect, uh, Calvin. What do you think of this film? Yeah, it's a movie. Like I said, it, it, it's it's ultimately it's it's actually worse than not being any of the things it wants to. It's working in opposition of the things it wants to be. So it's some it's somehow less than the than the individual parts it has, which is crazy. You know, I I, I can't I can't think of a single thing I like about this. I will add, I watch this movie from time to time. I have a list of movies that I consider so bad that they're fun to watch just because I like to remember why I hate certain movies. This makes your list? This makes my list of movies that are so bad. It's up there with uh, the Disney's Artemis Fowl and Avatar The Last Airbender. How does, uh, (laughs) what is that Samurai Cop? Where does that rate? Samurai Cop is honest. It is so below the scale that it's at the top. (laughs) I... What you said doesn't make any sense, but I totally understand what you meant. <laughs> it's, that movie so... I would love to do a review of Samurai Cop and Zombiever. Oh, we talked about Zombiever not too long ago. <sighs> yeah, I think one. we mentioned that. Yeah. I, I would give this movie 1.280 circle jerks. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I <laughs> Holy <that>. crap. <laughs> All right, McKenna, how, how many 80 circle jerks do you give this? What's the lowest number? Well, we're doing out of 10, so zero to 10. One and a half. The, the racing scene got a lot... Uh, it gets a lot from me, oh, but gosh. man, every character is boring. The plot is boring. The end is undeserved. Yeah. All right. I thought for the premise this film had and its infinite possibilities, <coughs> they managed to make this as captivating as a 90s desktop screensaver. <laughs> um, Something that still doesn't go into the corner. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wanted to like the stuff that was going on here like i wanted to be involved in the nostalgia and you know maybe part of it is i'm too cynical to just sit down and enjoy those things so i don't want to criticize anyone who had fun with this movie because they got to see all their background characters that they really like to see like i said i got to see battle toads which i thought was really cool i remember playing that on uh i, I, what, what? I want to say it was on like nintendo like it was the sega was it sega okay mm-hmm. uh, so like that was neat about it and so i'm actually gonna rate this a little higher than you because i get i guess maybe the nostalgia got me a little more than i got you guys i i give this three eighty circle jerks yeah 10 it's still garbage but i think i've apparently got enough fun out of the background stuff that i i wouldn't say it's worth watching but at least on my viewings i was like at least i had fun with this part yeah, I, I think as far as nostalgia, the, the movie that I think captures nostalgia really well for me was Wreck-It Ralph. 
So I kind of that's so good. I kind of compare this movie to Wreck It Ralph, and I think that movie Wreck It Ralph did such a better job of relaying nostalgia and like little bits of fan service here and there because it's not like down your throat, but if you keep an eye out for it, you're like, oh my god, there's Sonic! I just saw Sonic. That's so cool because he's not like in your face. But the games and the characters in them play a role in the movie. Like they have that support group and stuff. Mm -hmm. So you actually care about like the villains in that movie and how they feel and how they operate in their games. So it mattered. It wasn't just seeing them in the background. Their involvement they in the story the mattered. And yeah. that's why the nostalgia works better in that movie. That is such an excellent point. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think Wreck-It Ralph does a much better job of portraying like cabinet games than this film does. Yeah. All right. So with that, we're wrapping this one up. I just want to thank you, uh, McKinnon, for being on again. Happy to be here. And uh, as always, I've got Calvin with me. And uh, you can find our podcast on any platform like Spotify or iTunes. Uh, we also upload all these to YouTube. So go ahead and leave a comment. Tell us what we're doing well. Tell us what we're doing wrong. And if you have any suggestions for films we should do in the future. With that, we're wrapping up. And thank you for listening to Now This Is Podcasting.